Francisco Ferrer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Francisco Ferrer by Voltaire de Clare. In all unsuccessful social upheavals, there are two terrors: the red, that is, the people, the mob; the white, that is, the reprisal. When a year ago today the lightning of the white terror shot out of that netherest blackness of social depth, the Spanish torture-house, and laid in the ditch of Montjuich a human being, who but a moment before had been the personification of manhood, in the flower of life, in the strength and pride of a balanced intellect, full of the purpose of a great and growing understanding, that of the modern schools, humanity at large received a blow in the face which it could not understand. Stunned, bewildered, shocked, it recoiled and stood gaping with astonishment. How to explain it? The average individual, certainly the average individual in America, could not believe it possible that any group of persons calling themselves a government, let it be of the worst and most despotic, could slay a man for being a teacher, a teacher of modern sciences, a builder of hygienic schools, a publisher of textbooks. No, they could not believe it. Their minds staggered back and shook refusal. It was not so. It could not be so. The man was shot, that was sure. He was dead, and there was no raising him out of the ditch to question him. The Spanish government had certainly proceeded in an unjustifiable manner in court-martialing him and sentencing him, without giving him a chance at defense. But surely he had been guilty of something. Surely he must have rioted, or instigated riot, or done some desperate act of rebellion. For never could it be that in the twentieth century a country of Europe could kill a peaceful man, whose aim in life was to educate children in geography, arithmetic, geology, physics, chemistry, singing, and languages. No, it was not possible. And for all that it was possible, it was done on the 13th of October, one year ago today, in the face of Europe, standing with tied hands to look on at the murder. And from that day on, controversy between the awakened who understood, the reactionists who likewise understood, and their followers on both sides who have half understood, has surged up and down and left confusion pretty badly confounded in the mind of him who did not understand, but sought to. The men who did him to death, and the institutions they represent, have done all in their power to create the impression that Ferrer was a believer in violence, a teacher of the principles of violence, a doer of acts of violence, and an instigator of widespread violence perpetrated by a mass of people. In support of the first they have published reports purporting to be his own writings, have pretended to reproduce seditious pictures from the walls of his classrooms, have declared that he was seen mingling with the rebels during the Catalonian uprising of last year, and that upon trial he was found guilty of having conceived and launched the Spanish rebellion against the Moroccan war, and that his death was a just act of reprisal. On the other hand, we have had a storm of indignant voices clamoring in his defense, alternately admitting and denying him to be a revolutionist, alternately contending that his schools taught social rebellion, and that they taught nothing but pure science. We have had workmen demonstrating, and professors and literateurs protesting on very opposite grounds, and almost none were able to give definite information for the faith that was in them and indeed it has been very difficult to obtain exact information, and still is so. After a year's lapse, it is not easy to get the facts disentangled from the fancies, the truths from the lies, and above all from the half-lies. And even when we have the truths as to the facts, 
it is still difficult to valuate them, because of American ignorance of Spanish ignorance. Please understand the phrase. America has not too much to boast of in the way of its learning, but yet it has that much of common knowledge and common education that it does not enter into our minds to conceive of a population sixty-eight percent of which are unable to read and write, and a good share of the remaining thirty-two percent can only read, not write. Neither does it at all enter our heads to think that of this thirty-two percent of the better informed, the most powerful contingent is composed of those whose distinct, avowed, and deliberate purpose is to keep the ignorant ignorant. Whatever may be the sins of government in this country, or of the churches, and there are plenty of such sins, at least they have not, save in the case of negro slaves, constituted themselves a conspiratical force to keep out enlightenment, to prevent the people from learning to read and write, or to acquire whatever scientific knowledge their economic circumstances permitted them to. What the unconscious conspiracy of economic circumstance has done, and what conscious manipulations the government school is guilty of, to render higher education a privilege of the rich and a maintainer of injustice is another matter. But it cannot be charged that the rulers of America seek to render the people illiterate. People, therefore, who have grown up in a general atmosphere of thought which regards the government as a provider of education, even as a compeller of education, do not, unless their attention is drawn to the facts, conceive of a state of society in which government is a hostile force, opposed to the enlightenment of the people, its politicians exercising all their ingenuity to sidetrack the demand of the people for schools. How much less do they conceive the hostile force and power of a church, having behind it an unbroken descent from feudal ages, whose direct interest it is to maintain a closed monopoly of learning, and to keep out of general circulation all scientific information which would tend to destroy the superstitions whereby it thrives? I say that the American people in general are not informed as to these conditions, and therefore the phenomenon of a teacher killed for instituting and maintaining schools staggers their belief. And when they read the assertions of those who defend the murder, that it was because his schools were instigating the overthrow of social order in Spain, they naturally exclaim, Ah, that explains it. The man taught sedition, rebellion, riot in his schools. That is the reason. Now the truth is that what Ferrer was teaching in his schools was really instigating the overthrow of the social order of Spain, Furthermore, it was not only instigating it, but it was making it as certain as the still coming of the daylight out of the night of the East. But not by the teaching of riot, of the use of dagger, bomb, or knife, but by the teaching of the same sciences which are taught in our public schools, through a generally diffused knowledge of which the power of Spain's despotic church must crumble away. Likewise, it was laying the primary foundation for the overthrow of such portions of the state organization as exist by reason of the general ignorance of the people. The social order of Spain ought to be overthrown, must be overthrown, will be overthrown, and Ferrer was doing a mighty work in that direction. The men who killed him knew and understood it well. And they consciously killed him for what he really did, but they have let the outside world suppose they did it for what he did not do. Knowing there are no words so hated by all governments as sedition and rebellion, knowing that such words will make the most radical of governments align itself with the most despotic at once, knowing there is nothing which so offends the majority of conservative and peace-loving people everywhere as the idea of violence unordered by authority, they have willfully created the impression that Ferrer's schools were places where children and youths were taught to handle weapons and to make ready for armed attacks on the government. 
They have, as I said before, created this impression in various ways. They have pointed to the fact that the man who, in 1906, made the attack on Alfonso's life, had acted as a translator of books used by Ferrer in his schools. They have scattered over Europe and America pictures purporting to be reproductions of drawings and prominent wall spaces in his schools, recommending the violent overthrow of the government. As to the first of these accusations, I shall consider it later in the lecture, but as to the last, it should be enough to remind any person with an ordinary amount of reflection that the schools were public places open to anyone as our schools are, and that if any such pictures had existed, they would have been sufficient cause for shutting up the schools and incarcerating the founder within a day after their appearance on the walls. The Spanish government has that much sense of how to preserve its own existence that it would not allow such pictures to hang in a public place for one day. Nor would books preaching sedition have been permitted to be published or circulated. All this is foolish dust sought to be thrown in foolish eyes. No, the real offense was the real thing that he did. And in order to appreciate its enormity, from the Spanish ruling force's standpoint, let us now consider what that ruling force is, what are the economic and educational conditions of the Spanish people, why and how Ferrer founded the modern schools, and what were the subjects taught therein. Up to the year 1857 there existed no legal provision for general elementary education in Spain. In that year, owing to the liberals having gotten into power in Madrid, after a bitter contest aroused partially by the general political events of Europe, a law making elementary education compulsory was passed. This was two years before Ferrer's birth. Now it is one thing for a political party, temporarily in possession of power, to pass a law. It is quite another thing to make that law effective, even when wealth and general sentiment are behind it. But when, joined to the fact that there is a strong opposition, is added to the fact that this opposition is in possession of the greatest wealth of the country, that the people to be benefited are often quite as bitterly opposed to their own enlightenment as those who profit by their ignorance, and that those who do ardently desire their own uplift are extremely poor, the difficulty of practicalizing this educational law is partially appreciated. Ferrer's own boyhood life is an illustration of how much benefit the children of the peasantry reaped from the educational law. His parents were vine-dressers. They were eminently orthodox and believed what their priest, who was probably the only man in the little village of Alela able to read, told them that the liberals were the emissaries of Satan and that whatever they did was utterly evil. They wanted no such evil thing as popular education about and would not that their children should have it. Accordingly, even at thirteen years of age, the boy was without education, a circumstance which in after years made him more anxious that others should not suffer as he had. It is self-understood that if it was difficult to found schools in the cities where there existed a degree of popular clamor for them, it was next to impossible in the rural districts where people like Ferrer's parents were the typical inhabitants. The best result obtained by this law in the twenty years from 1857 to 1877 was that, out of sixteen million people, four million were then able to read and write, seventy-five percent remaining illiterate. At the end of 1907 the proportion was altered to six million illiterate out of eighteen million five hundred thousand population, which may be considered as a fairly correct approximate of the present condition. One of the very great accounting causes for this situation is the extreme poverty of the mass of the populace. In many districts of Spain, a laborer's wages are less than one dollar a week, and nowhere do they equal the poorest workman's wages in America.
Of course it is understood that the cost of living is likewise low, but imagine it as low as you please. It is still evident that the income of the workers is too small to permit them to save anything, even from the most frugal living. The dire struggle to secure food, clothing, and shelter is such that little energy is left wherewith to aspire to anything, to demand anything, either for themselves or their children. Unless, therefore, the government provided the buildings, the books, and appliances, and paid the teachers' salaries, it is easy to see that the people most in need of education are least able and least likely to provide it for themselves. Furthermore, the government itself, unless it can tax the wealthier classes for it, cannot, out of such an impoverished source, wring sufficient means to provide adequate schools and school equipments. Now the wealthiest classes are just the religious orders. According to the statement of Monsignor José Valeda de Guanyado, these orders now own two-thirds of the money of the country and one-third of the wealth and property. These orders are utterly opposed to all education except such as they themselves furnish, a lamentable travesty on learning. As a writer who has investigated these conditions personally observes, in reply to the question, does not the church provide numbers of schools, day and night, at its own expense? It does, unhappily for Spain. It provides schools whose principal aim is to strengthen superstition, follow a medieval curriculum, keep out scientific light, and prevent other and better schools from being established. A Spanish educational journal, La Escuela Española, not Ferrer's journal, declared in 1907 that these schools were largely without light or ventilations, dens of death, ignorance, and bad training. It was estimated that 50,000 children died every year in consequence of the mischievous character of the schoolrooms. And even to schools like these, there were half a million children in Spain who could gain no admittance. As to the teachers, they are allowed a salary ranging from $50 to $100 a year, but this is provided not by the state, but through voluntary donations from the parents. So that a teacher, in addition to his legitimate functions, must perform those of a collector of his own salary. Now conceive that he is endeavoring to collect it from parents whose wages amount to two or three dollars a week, and you will not be surprised at the case reported by a Madrid paper in 1903 of a master's having canvassed a district to find how many parents would contribute if he opened a school. Out of one hundred families, three promised their support. Is it any wonder that the law of compulsory education is a mockery? How could it be anything else? Now let us look at the products of this popular ignorance, and we shall presently understand why the Church fosters it, why it fights education, and also why the Catalonian insurrection of 1909, which began as a strike of workers in protest against the Moroccan War, ended in mob attacks upon convents, monasteries, and churches. I have already quoted the statement of a high Spanish prelate that the religious orders of Spain own two-thirds of the money of Spain, and one-third of the wealth and property. Whether this estimate is precisely correct or not, it is sufficiently near correctness to make us aware that at least a great portion of the wealth of the country has passed into their hands, a state not widely differing from that existing in France prior to the Great Revolution. Before the insurrection of last year, the city of Barcelona alone had 165 convents, many of which were exceedingly rich. The province of Catalonia maintained 2,300 of these institutions. Aside from these religious orders with their accumulations of wealth, the church itself, the united body of priests not in orders, is immensely wealthy. 
Conceive that in the cathedral at Toledo there is an image of the Virgin whose wardrobe alone would be sufficient to build hundreds of schools. Imagine that this doll, which is supposed to symbolize the forlorn young woman, who in her pain and sorrow and need was driven to seek shelter in a stable, whose life was ever lowly, and who is called the mother of sorrows. Imagine that this image of her has become a vulgar coquette sporting a robe, whereinto are sewn eighty-five thousand pearls, besides as many more sapphires, amethysts, and diamonds. Oh, what a decoration for the mother of the carpenter of Nazareth! What a vision for the dying eyes on the cross to look forward to! What an outcome of the gospel of salvation, free to the poor and lowly, taught by the poorest and the lowliest, that the humble keeper of the humble household, of the despised little village of Judea, should be imagined forth as a queen of gods, bedizened with a crown worth twenty-five thousand dollars, and bracelets valued at ten thousand dollars more. The Virgin Mary, the daughter of the stable, transformed into a diamond merchant's showcase. And this in the midst of men and women working for just enough to keep the skin upon the bone, in the midst of children who are denied the primary necessities of childhood. Now I ask you, when the fury of these people is burst, as under the provocation they received it was inevitable that it should burst, was it any wonder that it manifested itself in mob violence against the institutions which mock their suffering by this useless, senseless, criminal waste of wealth in the face of utter need? Will some one now whisper in our ears that there are women in America who decorate themselves with more jewels than the Virgin of Toledo, and throw away the price of a school on a useless decoration in a single night, while within a radius of five miles from them are also uneducated children, for whom our school boards can provide no place? Yes, it is so. Let them remember the mobs of Barcelona. And let me remember I am talking about Spain. The question naturally intrudes, how does the church, how do the religious orders manage to accumulate such wealth? Remember first that they are old, and of unbroken continuance for hundreds of years. The various forms of acquisition, in operation for centuries, would produce immense accumulations, even supposing nothing but legitimate purchases and gifts. But when we consider the actual means whereby money is daily absorbed from the people by these institutions, we receive a shock which sets all our notions of the triumph of modern science topsy-turvy. It is almost impossible to realize, and yet it is true, that the Spanish Church still deals in that infamous graft against which Martin Luther hurled the splendid force of his wrath four hundred years ago. The Church of Spain still sells indulgences. Every Catholic bookstore and every priest has them for sale. They are called bulas. Their prices range from about fifteen to twenty-five cents, and they constitute an elastic excuse for doing pretty much what the possessor pleases to do, providing it is not a capital crime, for a definitely named period. Probably there is no one in America so little able to believe this condition to exist as the ordinary well-informed Roman Catholic. I have myself listened to priests of the Roman faith giving conditions on which pardon for venal offences might be obtained, and they had nothing to do with money. They consisted in saying a certain number of prayers at stated periods with specified intent. While that may be a very illogical way of putting things together that have no connection, there is nothing in it to offend one's ideas of honesty. The enlightened conscience of an entire mass of people has demanded that a spiritual offence be dealt with by spiritual means. It would revolt at the idea that such grace could be written out on paper, and sold either to the highest bidder or for a fixed price. But now conceive what happens where a people are illiterate, 
regarding written documents with that superstitious awe which those who cannot read always have for the mysterious language of learning, regarding them besides with the combination of fear and reverence which the ignorant believer entertains for the visible sign of supernatural power, the power which holds over him the threat of eternal punishment, and you will have what goes on in Spain. Add to this that such a condition of fear and gullibility on the side of the people is the great opportunity of the religious grafter. Whatever number of honest, self-sacrificing, devoted people may be attracted to the service of the church, there will certainly be found also the cheat, the impostor, the searcher for ease and power. These indulgences, which for fifteen or twenty-five cents pardon the buyer for his past sins, but are good only till he sins again, constitute a species of permission to do what otherwise is forbidden. The most expensive one, the twenty-five-cent one, is practically a license to hold stolen property up to a certain amount. Both the rich and poor buy these things, the rich, of course, paying a good deal more than the stipulated sum. But it hardly requires the statement that an immense number of the very poor buy them also. And from this horrible traffic the Church of Spain annually draws millions. There are other sources of income, such as the sale of scapulars, agnus deis, charms, and other pieces of trumpery, which goes on all over the Catholic world also, but naturally to no such extent as in Spain, Portugal, and Italy, where popular ignorance may be again measured by the materialism of its religion. Now, is it reasonable to suppose that the individuals who are thriving upon these sales want a condition of popular enlightenment? Do they not know how all this traffic would crumble like the ash of a burnt-out fire, once the blaze of science were to flame through Spain? They educate, yes, they educate the people, to believe in these barbaric relics of a dead time, for their own material interest. Spain and Portugal are the last resort of the medieval church, the monasticism and the Jesuitry which have been expelled from other European countries, and compelled to withdraw from Cuba and the Philippines, have concentrated there, and there they are making their last fight. There they will go down into their eternal grave, but not till science has invaded the dark corners of the popular intellect. The political condition is parallel with the religious condition of the people, with the exception that the state is poor while the church is rich. There are some elements in the government which are opposed to the church religiously, which nevertheless do not wish to see its power as an institution upset, because they foresee that the same people who would overthrow the church would later overthrow them. These, too, wish to see the people kept ignorant. Nevertheless, there have been numerous political rebellions in Spain, having for their object the establishment of a republic. In 1868 there occurred such a rebellion under the leadership of Ruiz Zorilla. At that time, Ferrer was not quite twenty years old. He had acquired an education by his own efforts. He was a declared republican, as it seems that every young, ardent, bright-minded youth seeing what the condition of his country was, and wishing for its betterment, would be. Zoria was for a short time minister of public instruction under the new government, and very zealous for popular education. Naturally, he became an object of admiration and imitation to Ferrer. In the early eighties, after various fluctuations of political power, Zoria, who had been absent from Spain, returned to it, and began the labor of converting the soldiers to republicanism. Ferrer was then a director of railways, and of much service to Zoria in the practical work of organization. In 1885 this movement culminated in an abortive revolution, wherein both Ferrer and Zoria took active part, and were accordingly compelled to take refuge in France upon the failure of the insurrection. 
It is therefore certain that from his entrance into public agitation till the year 1885, Ferrer was an active revolutionary Republican, believing in the overthrow of Spanish tyranny by violence. There is no question that at that time he said and wrote things which, whether we shall consider them justifiable or not, were openly in favor of forcible rebellion. Such utterances charged against him at the alleged trial in 1909, which were really his, were quotations from this period. Remember, he was then twenty-six years old. When the trial occurred, he was fifty years old. What had been his mental evolution during those twenty-four years? In Paris, where, with the exception of a short intermission in 1889 when he visited Spain, he remained for about fifteen years, he naturally drifted into a method of making a living quite common to educated exiles in a foreign land, viz., giving private lessons in his native language. But while this is with most a mere temporary makeshift, which they change for something else as soon as they are able, to Ferrer it revealed what his real business in life should be. He found teaching to be his genuine vocation, so much so that he took part in several movements for popular education in Paris, giving much free service. This participation in the labor of training the mind, which is always a slow and patient matter, began to have its effect on his conceptions of political change. Slowly the idea of a Spain regenerated through the storm-blasts of revolution, mightily and suddenly, faded out of his belief, being replaced, probably almost insensibly, by the idea that a thorough educational enlightenment must precede political transformation, if that transformation were to be permanent. This conviction he voiced with strange power and beauty of expression, when he said to his old revolutionary Republican friend, Alfred Naquet, Time respects those works alone which time itself has helped to build. Naquet himself, old and sinking man as he is, is at this day and hour heart and soul for forcible revolution, admitting all the evils which it engenders and all the dangers of miscarriage which accompany it. He still believes, to quote his exact words, that revolutions are not only the marvellous accoucheurs of society, they are also fecundating forces. They fructify men's intelligences, and if they determine the final realization of matured evolutions, they also become, through their action on human minds, points of departure for newer evolutions. Yet he, who thus sings the paean of the uprisen people, with a fire of youth and an ardor of love that sound like the singing of some strong young blacksmith marching at the head of an insurgent column, rather than the quavering voice of an old spent man, he who was the warm personal friend of Ferrer for many years, and who would surely have wished that his ideal love should also have been his friend's love, he expressly declares that Ferrer was of those who feel themselves drawn to the field of preparative labor, making sure the ground over which the revolution may march to enduring results. This, then, was the ripened condition of his mind, especially after the death of Zoria, and all his subsequent life and labor is explicable only with this understanding of his mental attitude. In the confusion of deafening voices, it has been declared that not only did he not take part in last year's manifestations, nor instigate them, but that he in fact had been a Tolstoyan, a non-resistant. This is not true. He undoubtedly understood that the introduction of popular education into Spain means revolt, sooner or later and he would certainly have been glad to see a successful revolt overthrow the monarchy at Madrid. He did not wish the people to be submissive. It is one of the fundamental teachings of the schools he founded that the assertive spirit of the child is to be encouraged, that its will is not to be broken, that the sin of other schools is the forcing of obedience. 
he had helped to form a young Spain which would not submit, which would resist, resist consciously, intelligently, steadily. He did not wish to enlighten people merely to render them more sensitive to their pains and deprivations, but that they might so use their enlightenment as to rid themselves of the system of exploitation by church and state, which is responsible for their miseries. By what means they would choose to free themselves he did not make his affair. How and when were these schools founded? It was during his long sojourn in Paris that he had as a private pupil in Spanish a middle-aged, wealthy, unmarried Catholic lady. After much conflict over religion between teacher and pupil, the latter modified her orthodoxy greatly, and especially after her journeys to Spain, where she herself saw the condition of public instruction. Eventually she became interested in Ferrer's conceptions of education, and his desire to establish schools in his own country. And when she died in 1900, she was then somewhat over fifty years old, she devised a certain part of her property to Ferrer, to be used as he saw fit, feeling assured, no doubt, that he would see fit to use it not for his personal advantage, but for the purpose so dear to his heart, which he did. The bequest amounted to about $150,000 and the first expenditure was for the establishment of the modern school of Barcelona, in the year 1901. It should be said that this was not the first of the modern school movement in Spain, for previous to that, and for several years, there had sprung up, in various parts of the country, a spontaneous movement towards self-education, a very heroic effort, in a way, considering that the teachers were generally working men who had spent their day in the shops, and were using the remainder of their exhausted strength to enlighten their fellow-workers and the children. These were largely night-schools. As there were no means behind these efforts, the buildings in which they were held were of course unsuitable. There was no proper plan of work, no sufficient equipment, and little coordination of labor. A considerable percentage of these schools were already on the decline, when Ferrer, equipped with his splendid organizing ability, his teacher's experience, and Mademoiselle Meunier's endowment, opened the Barcelona School, having as pupils eighteen boys and twelve girls. So proper to the demand was this effort, that at the end of four years' earnest activity, fifty schools had been established, ten in Barcelona and forty in the provinces. In 1906, that is, after five years' work, a banquet was held on Good Friday, at which seventeen hundred pupils were present. From thirty to seventeen hundred, that is something and a banquet in Catholic Spain on Good Friday, a banquet of children who have made good-bye to the salvation of the soul by the punishment of the stomach. We here may laugh, but in Spain it was a triumph and a menace which both sides understood. I have said that Ferrer brought to his work splendid organizing ability. This he speedily put to purpose by enlisting the cooperation of a number of the greatest scientists of Europe in the preparation of textbooks embodying the discoveries of science, couched in language comprehensible to young minds. So far, I am sorry to say, I have not succeeded in getting copies of these manuals. The Spanish government confiscated most of them, and has probably destroyed them. Still, there are some uncaptured sets. One is already in the British Museum, and I make no doubt that within a year or so we shall have translations of most of them. There were thirty of these manuals, all told, comprising the work of the three sections, primary, intermediate, and superior, into which the pupils were divided. From what I have been able to find out about these books, I believe the most interesting of them would be the first reading book. It was prepared by Dr. Odin de Buen, and is said to be at the same time a speller, a grammar, and an illustrated manual of evolution. 
the majestic story of the evolution of the cosmos from the atom to the thinking being, related in a language simple, comprehensible to the child. Twenty thousand copies of this book were rapidly sold. Imagine what that meant to Catholic schools, that the babies of Spain should learn nothing about eternal punishment for their deadly sins, and should learn that they are one in a long line of unfolding life that started in the lowly sea-slime. The books on geography, physics, and mineralogy were written in like manner and with like intent by the same author. On anthropology, Dr. Engourand wrote, and on evolution, Dr. Letourneau of Paris. Among the very suggestive works was one on the universal substance, a collaborative production of Albert Bloch and Perif Javel, in which the mysteries of existence are resolved into their chemical equivalents, so that the foundations for magic and miracle are unceremoniously cleared out of the intellectual mind. This book was prepared at Ferrer's special request, as an antidote to ancestral leanings, inherited superstitions, the various outside influences counteracting the influences of the school. The methods of instruction were modeled after earlier attempts in France, and were based on the general idea that physical and intellectual education must continually supplement each other. That no one is really educated, so long as his knowledge is merely the recollection of what he has read or seen in a book. Accordingly, a lesson often consisted of a visit to a factory, a workshop, a studio, or a laboratory, where things were explained and illustrated, or in a class journey to the hills, or the sea, or the open country, where the geological or topographical conditions were studied, or botanical specimens collected and individual observation encouraged. Very often even book classes were held out of doors, and the children insensibly put in touch with the great pervading influences of nature, a touch too often lost, or never felt at all, in our city environments. How different was all this from the incomprehensible theology of the Catholic schools, to be learned and believed but not understood, the impractical rehearsing of strings of words characteristic of medieval survivals. No wonder the modern schools grew and grew, and the hatred of the priest waxed hotter and hotter. Their opportunity came. Indeed, they did not wait long. In the year 1906, on the 31st of May, not so very long after that Good Friday banquet, occurred the event which they seized upon to crush the modern school and its founder. I am not here to speak either for or against Matteo Morale. He was a wealthy young man, of much energy and considerable learning. He had helped to enrich the library of the modern school, and being an excellent linguist, he had offered to make translations of textbooks. Ferrer had accepted the offer. That is all Morale had to do with the modern school. But on the day of royal festivities, Morale had it in his head to throw a bomb where it would do some royal hurt. He missed his calculations, and the hurt intended did not take place. But after a short interval, finding himself about to be captured, he killed himself. Think of him as you please. Think that he was a madman who did a madman's act. Think that he was a generous enthusiast, who in an outburst of long chafing indignation at his country's condition, wanted to strike a blow at a tyrannical monarchy, and was willing to give his own life in exchange for the tyrants. Or better than this, reserve your judgment, and say that you know not the man nor his personal condition, nor the special external conditions that prompted him and that without such knowledge he cannot be judged. But whatever you think of morale, pray, why was Ferrer arrested and the modern school of Barcelona closed? Why was he thrown in prison and kept there for more than a year? Why was it sought to railroad him before a court-martial, and that attempt failing, the civil trial postponed for all that time? Why? Why? 
because Ferrer taught science to the children of Spain, and for no other thing. His enemies would have killed him then, but having been compelled to yield an open trial, by the outcry of Europe, they were also compelled to release him. But I imagine I hear, yea, hear, the resolute mutter behind the closed walls of the monastery, the day Ferrer went free. Go then, we shall get you again, and then, and then they would do what three years later they did, damn him to the ditch of Montjuich. Yea, they shut their lips together like the thin lips of fate, and waited. The hatred of an order has something superb in it. It hates so relentlessly, so constantly, so transcendentally. Its personnel changes, its hate never alters. It wears one priest's face or another's. Itself is identical, inexorable. It pursues to the end. Did Ferrer know this? Undoubtedly, in a general way, he did. And yet he was so far from conceiving its appalling remorselessness that even when he found himself in prison again, and utterly in their power, he could not believe that he would not be freed. What was the opportunity for which the Jesuitry of Spain waited with such terrible security? The Catalonian uprising. How did they know it would come? As any sane man, not over-optimistic, knows that uprising must come in Spain. Ferrer hoped to sap away the foundations of tyranny through peaceful enlightenment. He was right but they are also right to say that there are other forces hurling towards those foundations, the greatest of these, starvation. Now it was plain and simple starvation that arose to rend its starvers when the Catalonian women rose in mobs to cry against the command that was taking away their fathers and sons to their death in Morocco. The Spanish people did not want the Moroccan war. The government, in the interest of a number of capitalists, did, but like all governments and all capitalists, it wanted working men to do the dying. And they did not want to die, and leave their wives and children to die too. So they rebelled. At first it was the conscious, orderly protest of organized working men. But starvation no more respects the commands of working men's unions than the commands of governments and other orderly bodies. It has nothing to lose, and it gets away in its fury from all management, and it riots. Where churches and monasteries are offensively rich and at ease in the face of hunger, hunger takes its revenge. It has long fangs, it rends and tears and tramples, the innocent with the guilty, always. It is very horrible. But remember, remember how much more horrible is the long, slow, systematic crushing, wasting, drying of men upon their bones, which year after year, century after century, has begotten the monster, hunger. Remember the fifty thousand innocent children annually slaughtered, the blinded and the crippled children, maimed and forsaken by social power, and behind the smoke and flame of the burning convents of July 1909, see the staring of those sightless eyes. Fairer instigate that mad frenzy. Oh, no, it was a mightier than fairer. Our Lady of Pain, Our Lady of Hunger, Our Lady with uncut nails and wolf-like teeth, our Lady who bears the man-flesh in her body that cannon are to tear. Our Lady, the working woman of Spain, a-hungered. She incarnated the Red Terror. And the enemies of Ferrer in 1906, as in 1909, knew that such things would come, and they bided their time. It is one of those pathetic things which destiny deals, and it was only for love's sake, and most for the love of a little child, who died, moreover, that the uprising found Ferrer in Spain at all. He had been in England, investigating schools and methods there from April until the middle of June. Word came that his sister-in-law and his niece were ill, so the 19th of June found him at the little girl's bedside. He intended soon after to go to Paris, 
but delayed to make some inquiries for a friend concerning the proceedings of the Electrical Society of Barcelona. So the storm caught him as it caught thousands of others. He went about the business of his publishing-house as usual, making the observations of an interested spectator of events. To his friend Naquet he sent a postal card on the 26th of July, in which he spoke of the heroism of the women, the lack of coordination in the people's movements, and the total absence of leaders as a curious phenomenon. Hearing soon after that he was to be arrested, he secluded himself for five weeks. The white terror was in full sway. Three thousand men, women, and children had been arrested, incarcerated, inhumanly treated. Then the chief prosecutor issued the statement that Ferrer was the director of the revolutionary movement. Too indignant to listen to the appeals of his friends, he started to Barcelona to give himself up and demand trial. He was arrested on the way, and they court-martialed him. The proceedings were utterly infamous. No chance to confront witnesses against him, no opportunity to bring witnesses, not even the books accused of sedition allowed to offer their mute testimony in their own defense, no opportunity given to his defender to prepare, letters sent from England and France to prove what had been the doomed man's purposes and occupations during his stay there, lost in transit. The old articles of twenty-four years before, made to appear as if recent utterances, forgeries imposed, and with all this, nothing but hearsay evidence, even from his accusers, and yet he was sentenced to death, sentenced to death and shot, and all modern schools closed and his property sequestrated, and the Virgin of Toledo may wear her gorgeous robes in peace, since the shadow of the darkness has stolen back over the circle of light he lit. Only somewhere, somewhere down in the obscurity, hovers the menacing figure of her rival, Our Lady of Pain. She is still now, but she is not dead. And if all things be taken from her, and the light not allowed to come to her, nor to her children, then, some day, she will set her own lights in the darkness. Fairer, fairer is with the immortals. His work is spreading over the world. It will yet return, and rid Spain of its tyrants. End of Francisco Ferrer.